Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Well, aren't I the luckiest boy on the internet? Uh, We did it. It happened very quickly. You did it. We have crossed the $4,000 a week mark. And uh, this is now my job. This is my full-time job. And uh, I I think that my sincerity would be disgusting if I were to try to fully express my gratitude. So let me just say one more time, thank you. And uh, and we'll move on a bit because we're going to go for the full thing. We are still under... 10% of the listenership of this show supporting this show. In fact, that's actually changed radically because, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just spiking right now, but the show's up to like 15,000 listeners a week. And uh, right now there are 840 patrons at patreon.com slash CanadaLand as I record this. And why would any of you who have not supported this show yet do so now? I mean, the incentive might seem a lot lower than when the future of this show is in jeopardy. Uh, Your fellow listeners have secured the future of the show. Their support has made sure not only that this show will continue, but that there will be two episodes a week. 
starting in November. I will need a bit of time to level up and, and figure out the new format for the second show. Uh, but that's what your fellow listeners have done. Now that we're past 4000 the next milestone is way off. $6,000 more per month I need to raise in order to turn CanadaLand into a news organization with daily news stories coming out on the website for me to start hiring other journalists for there to be a CanadaLand podcast network. So what does it mean to give me a buck a month now or $4 a month or $7 a month when I'm so far from the next goal? Well, I do want to clarify what happens with that money. When we're at $4,500 a month or $5,000 a month or $6,000 a month, that extra cash above $4,000 is not going to go into my pocket. Every dollar above the $4,000 a month, which covers my full-time employment and, and my overhead and two shows a week, every dollar above that is going to go into original journalism. And that means that I want to uh, put out there a, a, a widespread call for freelance pitches, both for uh, audio stories and documentaries and for blog posts for CandleLandShow.com. I've had a bunch of that on the site so far. It's worked out really well. Some wonderful young journalists have contributed some good stuff. Now, I have always paid for that content, but now I'm going to double what I pay for that content. So please do send me story ideas and we'll talk about it. And please do keep supporting the show. That money is going to directly buy journalism. The other wonderful thing that has happened because of the exposure of this campaign Pain. I believe that's why it's happened, is uh, I'm once again getting contacted by people uh, who want to share with me some incredible news stories that have been hidden so far. And I'm working on one right now that I think it's a monster. It's a huge revelation. It will appear soon as a post at CandleLandShow.com. And this is a story that is uh, worse than embarrassing for certain parties. And I want to flag that now because I think that what is very likely to happen is that I will be targeted, that my credibility will be called into question, that my journalism will be challenged. Who knows? Now, I expect that when you're saying things about people who have a lot to lose, but there is a new element to this now that I am being paid directly by listeners of this show. It used to be that when powerful people wanted to do something about a reporter, they would complain to that reporter's editor and try to get the reporter fired. You know, they would talk to the reporter's boss. You are now my boss. And I would not be surprised if there was some sort of public appeal to the listeners of this show based on some of these revelations that are forthcoming. Now, I expect challenges to my journalism, uh, not just from people who I'm writing about, from anyone. I welcome it. And uh, I encourage you to listen to what anyone has to say about the work that I do on this show. Make up your own mind. All I can promise you, I certainly can't promise you uh, infallibility, but I will promise you transparency in the way that I go about reporting things. And, you know, I think that this is just going to be the new normal. Uh, I have an independence that I think is somewhat unprecedented in the Canadian media, and I intend to use it. And, and that's going to have repercussions. And I'm just flagging that for your attention. We'll see what happens. An interesting observation on Twitter by uh, the journalist Paul Wells. He had a look at the list of patrons uh, on Patreon.com where everyone's name is listed if they choose that. And this is something that Patreon actually could do a better job of making clear. You don't have to have your name publicly listed if you support this show. You can put in whatever you like under the first and last name fields. Your email address will never be published. But most people use their real name. And Paul Wells was looking at all the names and said that uh, this really is an assemblage of strange bedfellows. And it really is. I mean, I never really had that much insight beyond just sort of the numbers of down downloads as to who is listening to the show and where their sympathies lie. And you guys are all over the map. It is coming from the left. It is coming from the right. It skews heavily younger and it skews heavily male, but there are still plenty of older people. There are a lot of boomers listening to the show. There are a lot of women listening to the show. And I am overjoyed because I couldn't pander to you people 
if I tried. I mean, this was one thing that I was asked about is, you know, now that you are getting paid by these people, is there a risk that the show is just going to become kind of an agree-a-thon? You're going to give the people what they want. You're going to advocate for the politics that they already have and, and no one's going to learn anything. And I think that that is functionally impossible. There is no profile of a Canada Land listener. I mean, I can't infer anything about this crowd. I can't even say, well, these are a very diverse group of people, but they all like me. Some of you do not. People have been vocal on Twitter saying, that guy annoys me. That guy guy irritates me. I don't agree with that guy. I've heard all of that this week from people who are giving me money to make this show, people who are going to support the show anyway, not because they like me, but because they think a show like this should exist. So I can take nothing for granted about your leanings, and that offers me further independence to, to cover things as I normally would. And, uh, and I guess that is a very long segue into today's show, because today's show is about Israel. I did not want to do a show about Israel. I mean, think about this. This past summer, during the Gaza conflict, I'm doing a media criticism show, and all of a sudden, everybody is a media critic. My Facebook feed, my Twitter feed, it all got jammed with people taking apart the media's coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And both sides were absolutely convinced that the media was completely, even criminally biased to the other side. Every day, there were three or four more articles that in the comments, people were taking apart three or four news clips that were getting close read analysis beyond just the actual content. What is the terminology being used? What inflection is the reporter using when they talk about Israelis or Palestinians? And what can we infer from that? What photos were doctored and what wasn't? What information can we trust? This is media criticism and it was happening all day, every day. And I didn't touch it. I didn't talk about it on this show. I did not leave a comment on Facebook. Because I just didn't see the point. Now, obviously, I am a person who finds a lot of value in talking about things. But I have been talking with people about Israel my whole life, and I don't know to what end. I have never engaged in a conversation about Israel where anyone has convinced the other person of anything. Feelings get hurt. Tempers flare. It gets really raw. All of which I'm okay with. But to what end? I lost my faith in discourse itself this past summer, and I found myself questioning people's motives. I don't know. I I became very cynical about this stuff, and I didn't talk about it for that reason, and I didn't talk about it because I'm a coward. I mean, you want to ask the question, are journalists biased when it comes to Israel-Palestine? They are absolutely biased. Every journalist I've ever encountered is incredibly biased towards saying as little as possible. Israel makes journalists' buttholes contract. We are terrified of betraying bias. There are entire organizations well-funded on both sides that do nothing but analyze every word journalists write or speak about Israel-Palestine to figure out if we're biased or not and then try to get us fired. And so when we do talk about this stuff, we push our personal biases down to the tips of our toes and become weirdo robots who don't have any opinion or feeling about it at all. That has become the default mode of reporting or discussing Israel-Palestine. And I really didn't want to do that either because, of course, I have my biases, my prejudices. And so I'm thinking if I put all of that out there and get in the ring with this and engage with this stuff, there is just so much that could go wrong. There's so many of you who could be offended. It's almost like I'm not doing my job if some of you aren't offended or if I don't offend people on both sides of this. And I have no idea what's to be gained. I don't know how we can make progress on this. I don't know what the Canada Land podcast is going to offer to the Mideast conflict that is going to push the ball forward a fraction of a fraction of a centimeter, but I am not comfortable with opting out of this entirely either. And so when I had an opportunity to speak with Norman Spector, I jumped at it. Now, Norman Spector is not unbiased either. 
But he is someone who knows what he's talking about when it comes to Israel-Palestine. He was Canada's ambassador to Israel from 1992 to 1995 during the Oslo peace talks. He was directly involved speaking with Israeli Prime Minister at the time Yitzhak Rabin in Hebrew, speaking with Yasser Arafat in Arabic. He was there. And later, he was the publisher of the Jerusalem Post. I met up with him in Victoria. I was determined to speak only about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of the media coverage thereof, but like every conversation about Israel ever, it got wildly off track. I will give away the ending and reveal to you that we did not solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict throughout the course of our conversation, but I was still glad to have this conversation. I'm glad to present it to you now. It's coming up in a minute. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by listeners Mark Sauerwald, Alexei Badalov, David Smith, Brett Woolard, Jeff Hume, Pat Meekin, Martin Van Waveren, Miles Potter, Ben Klass, Giselle Gojwain, and Kevin O'Donnell. Kevin, why did you decide to be awesome? I happened to cross your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and that was just before your Patreon started. And I think, uh, I think that's a great podcast, and I wanted to support it. And Kevin, uh, tell everybody about the website you mentioned to me. Yeah, so Otwatch is a website I created to make it easier for uh, city hall nerds to dig into city information, and it's uh, ottwatch.ca in uh, in Ottawa. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems. And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Norman, there's a cycle here that's been going on uh, for longer than I've been alive. It, it feels like just this deja vu, and yet uh, uh, this last one felt different to me. Did it feel different to you? I would say that the only difference this time was the partisan quasi-consensus, the political parties, uh-huh. which then had an influence, I think, on media coverage. I was watching Twitter in terms of journalists on Twitter. Virtual silence. Wow. 
you have a very different Twitter feed than I do. I don't know. Maybe I'm in a bubble or, or maybe we both are. Uh, I have never felt public opinion sway against Israel like I did this past summer. Shockingly so. I didn't find it particularly shocking this time. Now, that's not to say there wasn't vitriol on social media. There was. But again, I'd been writing. I've been writing on this. I was writing in the Globe on this issue from 2003 on. So I'm kind of uh, inured to the kinds of criticism you get uh, on this issue. So no, I didn't find it particularly vitriolic this time. But again, I wasn't watching TV. I mean, I think people who who have been watching this stuff on TV would have had a much more emotional reaction than people uh, reading it in the newspapers. I mean, the pictures are awful. I mean, let's face it. Sure. They start off awful. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Gaza. I've been to Gaza. I used to walk around on foot in Gaza. I mean, until you've walked into a refugee camp and seen the sewage, the raw sewage flowing in the streets, you really don't appreciate what Gaza is all about. You don't appreciate, until you've been there, you don't appreciate how crowded it is. So the TV pictures are going to be the TV pictures. But in terms of, uh, look, I didn't see, if public opinion was that strong, you would have seen the opposition parties crack a lot sooner. Then they cracked. Okay, well, I mean, whether any party chose to represent them, you know, you can't dispute the existence of thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of Canadians who saw those pictures and who were very vocally and passionately against Israel's campaign in Gaza. Well, okay, uh, yeah, they were out there. But you see, it's hard for a party to take that side when you're dealing with Hamas. It's very hard. I mean, the choice is really, look, Canada's position since 1946-47 has been in favor of a two-state solution. It's as simple as that. And Hamas isn't. You're, you, you know, you hear the term disproportionate. Most of the people who are using the term disproportionate don't understand what it means. It's not a football score. It's not a body count score. It's not what CBC Radio that I was listening to presented every day. That 2,000 or 1,900, as of today, 1,982 Palestinians have died and two Israelis or whatever. That's not what disproportionate means. Disproportionate means that under the laws of war, you have the right to defend yourself, including attacks on areas in which there may be civilians, but that every attack has to be justified in terms of the military objective versus the, civi- the potential civilian casualties. You know, the fact that they were, they, were, they were firing rockets from civilian areas doesn't make those areas immune from a response. The response must be proportionate. But proportionate doesn't mean the football score at the end, the goal score at the end in terms of the number of casualties. That's not what it means. Proportionate as a word do- does mean that. There's a, a, a radical imbalance between the number of Israelis killed and the number of Palestinians killed. And that is a question of proportion. I, I take your point that there is, you know, a military uh, term disproportionate warfare that, that, that is very different. But, you know, journalists use the English language to tell stories. We're not, we're not bound to any particular uh, technical lexicon. And uh, I feel like you are forcing me in, into a binary that I'm not sure exists, that the only alternative to supporting Israel is to support Hamas. Can I be critical of Israel? Sure. Can I be critical of its policies and, and of needless civilian deaths and, and kids getting blown up on beaches and hospitals being bombed? Sure. And what, what happens when we go down that road? I mean, if we conclude that, you know, should civilian targets uh, become military targets, then so be it. And, you know, it's all Hamas's fault. What, at what point is that just a blank check for whatever Israel ends up doing? Well, it should never, it should never be a blank check. And there, is, there are laws of war. 
and the laws of war do require a proportionate response. And in some cases, that response may not have been proportionate. In some cases, the civilian deaths were way beyond what a military target would, would, would justify. Now, some people will say that was deliberate. Other people will say that was uh, accidental. It wasn't intended. But in, in any of those cases, those were the minority of the attacks. Those were the minority of the casualties. So, um, you know, to focus on them is really... Uh, disproportionate to what that conflict was out of bed. Okay, but there is a very fierce debate as to whether or not Israel can invoke the international laws that you cite, whether it can, you know, declare war on territory that it occupies as, as opposed to like a sovereign nation uh, and, and be covered by those laws. Uh, but but I, that's not a debate that, I, that, I, that I'm going to have with you. Uh, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier about the lack of opposition to the Gaza campaign on the part of uh, the liberals and, and uh, the NDP affecting the media coverage and uh, and the led to silence uh, on Twitter from journalists. Do you really think that journalists take their cues from politicians in that way? I think generally ger- journalists uh, tend to want not want to lead public opinion, but would prefer to see an opposition party take a position, whatever the issue. Uh, I don't think journalists like to become the political opposition per se. They would rather see, have some figure that they can turn to so I think that's what I mean when you you know when you saw the Toronto Star support the Israeli response I mean what more had to be said I don't know I don't know if any of it has to be said I you know I I don't know if you read um, Anthony Lerman in the Times you know when he wrote that liberal Zionism is is basically dead that that if Jews like me think that it's still viable it's still compatible to argue that um, basic values of, of humanitarianism and equality can be achieved, you know, just as soon as Palestinians get their act together and we work on a peace deal and, and, and they get a state. If we think that that's what this is about, we're kidding ourselves. And, and even worse, we're providing cover for an Israeli government that has no intention of moving in that direction. There's nothing in what Netanyahu has done to suggest that his strategy is, is moving towards any kind of a two-state solution. It seems to be a strategy for permanent occupation. Well, first of all... Um you know, I don't have, uh, I don't really care what North American Jews think of Israel, um, liberal or conservative. It's really beside the point. I start off an analysis of Israeli public opinion. I mean, they're a country in themselves. They have national interests. They have their democracy. They have a vibrant press. They have debates there. And... Right now, if you're looking at uh, the Israeli government, Netanyahu is one of the moderating forces in the Israeli cabinet. It's hard, that may be hard for you to accept, and it may be hard for others to accept, but most of his coalition is well to the right of him. But both he and Abbas, at least ostensibly, favor a two-state solution. And uh, right now, there's no better interlocutors than those two. So I think the business in North America about uh, Likud and Netanyahu and all this, a lot of that is memes, a lot of that is people who really aren't all that familiar, not only with the Israeli side, but more people are even more ignorant of the Palestinian side. Look, I was very fortunate when I was over there to be there during the Oslo period. It was hopeful and you could get to know both sides. You could get to walk around Gaza. You could get to walk around Ramallah. 
You could get to walk around East Jerusalem. You could, you could walk anywhere. And you got to see both sides of the conflict. But look, North American Jews are, you know, have pains in their kishkas about this, particularly leftist Jews, uh, because, you know, from the 19, late 1980s on, that was the Palestinian position, two states. I mean, they were going for two states. That was, you know, they wanted a Palestinian state. I found a lot of BDS people in my Twitter feed, a lot of uh, a boycott divestment uh, strategy, uh-huh. okay? Israel as an apartheid state. Yeah. I found a lot of that stuff, a lot of delegitimization of the whole idea of Israel, which again made it hard for there to be a conjuncture between the parties, the political parties that are all in favor of a three of a two state solution, because that has been Canada's position since forty six, forty seven, since even before the UN vote. We were on the special committee on Palestine. Mr. Justice Ivan Rand helped draft the partition proposal. So that is the Canadian position. But I, I find there's qu- quite a lot of opposition that you see now to the idea of two states coming from both sides. Okay, so you don't care what, what Jews outside of Israel or, you know, maybe what anybody outside of Israel will think about this. But, you know, you, you were the publisher of the Jerusalem Post. It's an English language newspaper that was most widely read online by people outside of Israel, uh, many of them Jews. I mean, at least in that role, you must have felt that international opinion about Israel uh, was of some consequence. Yeah, but that, you know, that wasn't, I didn't consider that my target market. I mean, I hired Daoud Kutab to be a columnist at the Jerusalem Post. I lost subscriptions. I didn't care. Uh, my my uh, my uh, approach has always been to try to understand this, understand this conflict, understand it from both sides. And uh, look, international public opinion matters because uh, support of the of the West and other governments, the UN, International Criminal Court, all that sort of stuff matters. I don't care about it personally. I think Israel cares about it. I think the Palestinians care about uh, public opinion. I think they are they are fighting a propaganda war as much as they're fighting a, a military war. I all I was saying is I don't have much time for Jews in North America who are splitting their kishkas over uh, you know over what Israel is doing and you know you know have pangs of guilt and all that. If you want to do Israeli politics, go over to Israel. Here we're in Canada. The uh, the uh, parties take their position. You know, part of the thing is that the issue gets much too much attention in the media compared to other issues. I mean, how many people have died in Syria? I'm not saying that as a, a point of argumentation, but if you want to look at the thing in proportion, the Middle East, con- you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is actually a very small part of what's going on there now. There's a disproportionate amount of attention. There's a disproportionate media presence. There's a disproportionate attention of the media to this conflict compared to other conflicts in the world. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And what happens then is Canadian politicians have to respond, just like you know, either they find it in their interest to respond or they respond because, the, you know, it's on the minds of the public. I mean, look at poor Obama now having to respond to ISIS, uh, even though it goes against all his inclinations, because Americans saw two American journalists get decapitated or sort of got saw them get decapitated. That's what that's all about. There's just been a tremendous emotional reaction in U.S. public opinion. OK, so to your first point, which was uh, explored by that AP reporter, I mean, that's true. There is a higher concentration of journalists in Israel 
than anywhere else on earth, uh, sent from all over the world to cover this conflict. Uh, and, and if you went just by the amount of ink that they get, by the amount of coverage, I mean, you, you would conclude that this must be the most important story uh, in the planet, uh, when in fact, in, in, in human terms, the body count in Syria is disproportionately higher. But you draw a direct line fr- from the public response that that coverage generates, uh, or that the, you know, the ISIS beheadings generate, to the American military response. That's why they're doing it. And I, I don't know if I buy that Obama is, is just uh, responding to popular opinion, just responding to media-fueled popular sentiment. Supporting Israel is consistent with America's interests. Uh, intervening in Iraq is consistent with America's political and uh, economic interests. Uh, Syria, not so much. I suppose. Uh, I still think it's... Uh, I still think it's... Um quite strange that we see, you know, in the old days, a lot of Middle East reporters were based in Cyprus, in Cairo. You know, I can remember in my day, uh, in the early 90s, Southam's correspondent was based in Cairo, not in Israel. There were correspondents coming in from Cyprus. Now they're all in Jerusalem. I mean, to the point where you hear the CBC radio reporter pronouncing Hamas as you would in Hebrew, not in Arabic, which is the funniest thing, reporting on Hamas or reporting on Syria or reporting on Iraq from Jerusalem. I mean, you know, what's going on? Well, it's a lot nicer to live in Jerusalem than it is. It is. Those There's other also places. very good tax breaks for journalists, for foreign journalists who live in Israel. <laughs> uh, you, you strike me, you know, uh, whatever else is a very pragmatic person. I mean, do you really believe still in the possibility of, of a two-state solution? I see it as the only solution. So therefore, I have faith that it's in the cards. I, I can't think of any other solution. So uh, you either break down in despair, as Gerald Kaplan did in the Globe and Mail, and say uh, it's never going to be resolved. Or you say, you know, you try to maintain a, an optimistic, hopeful perspective, and it's a two-state solution. Now, I think it's not going to be easy to get there. I think that, uh, I think that uh, policymakers should be thinking about how to promote that two-state solution, and they, don't, they aren't always thinking about that. I think, um, look, I, I was a supporter of the Oslo Peace Agreement. I, th- I thought that was a terrific way to go. Um, it was sad that it didn't succeed. Tragic. But I was then very hopeful of what Kerry was doing. I thought that uh, the time had come to put it all on the table. But I was hopeful for what Sharon was doing. Uh, I, I was hopeful for what Sippy Livney was doing. It's just, it's just a story that's uh, it's a heartbreaker every time. Yeah, it is. But uh, what's the alternative? What we have. Well, I mean, that's, that's a very sad part, too. I mean, the idea that uh, this conflict is going to come around every three or four years with these kinds of uh, tragic consequences is quite depressing. But that's what we live in. Again, this may not be comfortable to North Americans, but from the Israelis' point of view, there are worse alternatives than the status quo. I mean... You know, when people say there's no military solution, of course there's a military solution. It's just that no one could contemplate using military means to really resolve the issue. I mean, you know, you're going to talk about Dresden? 
you're going to talk about those kinds? Of course there's a million, but it's just not in the cards. So your next best solution is what the Israelis are doing now in terms of Hamas. In terms of the Palestinian Authority, the best solution is a two-state solution. Palestinians haven't had elections since 2007. The latest polls say Hamas would win in the West Bank as well. You have to understand public opinion on that side as well. It's very antagonistic. It's very supportive of Hamas. It's very, uh, you know, it's, 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 it, the, the overall claims haven't been forgotten, the refugee issues, all these sorts of things. And uh, it's a very, very difficult issue to resolve. But I don't think you get, I don't think you resolve those issues by trying to paper them over. I think you were much better to come right out and say, look, here's what the conflict is really all about. And it really is about two states. It really is about a Palestinian state, and it really is about a Jewish state. And those are the two states that we voted for in 1947 at the United Nations, quotes. And that is the solution. And everybody has to keep saying that. And you have to say it to the Palestinians, and you have to say it to the Israelis. And you have to say it clearly. I mean, that's a, that's a ghoulish reality that you point to. I mean, it's true uh, that Israel always has a military solution at its fingertips. Uh, genocide. And, uh, you know, this debate has become so toxic that it, it, it's become common to openly suggest that that's what Israel is about, that that's the strategy. Uh, there was that editorial, you may remember, that was like, it was written by some guy who is not a journalist. I don't think he'd ever been in print before. He lives in New Jersey. Uh, nobody had ever heard of the guy before. He was writing on a website that had no real credibility That uh, as a news organization. I don't think nobody had heard of that before. And, and in this piece, you remember he says, you know, hey, uh, maybe genocide in this case is justifiable. And that was seized upon as like an aha, we knew it. Here's, here's proof of Israel's true strategy. And, and here were otherwise rational people sharing that link and spreading that message as if this was a mainstream idea that was actually being considered in Israel. If, if the Israeli objective were genocide, they would, if, if, if that was their game plan, they would do it. I mean, they, they, they have the capability to do it. It obviously isn't their, uh, <laughs> it obviously isn't their game plan. But yes, uh, look, th there was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of passion. The discourse crosses the boundaries, but... Uh, no, it's, it's beyond that. I mean, this isn't just about uh, a toxic discourse. Uh, I mean, this, this does challenge some basic notions that Jewish people everywhere have about ourselves as a moral people. I mean, to have been oppressed and to now find ourselves in the role, uh, whether it's our fault or not, as the permanent oppressor, uh, or at least the occupier, I mean, that, that is a challenge to a notion of a Jewish self. That, that, that is an existential conflict for a lot of people. In North America. I, in Israel, too. Well, but much less so this time. The left kind of collapsed. They have no alternative country. You and I have an alternative country. Yeah. We have Canada. We can have all these uh, existential anxieties and conflicts of uh, ideology and feelings of uh, feeling bad about all this thing and saying it's, it's not in our tradition. They don't have an alternative uh, country. I mean, when you say the left collapsed, we're talking about the same people uh, in Israel who voted That's left, exactly the same right. people who, who, who overwhelmingly supported a two-state well, well I, I think they still do. They still do. But, but they lost it, faith in it. Well, it, no, they, in this conflict, had no choice. They were confronted with saying, hey, listen, how do you justify what Hamas is doing? 
Israel pulled out of Gaza. They took they uprooted the settlements in Gaza. Uh, how do you justify? And these are people who still believe in a two. I mean, the Labour Party, the left, were saying this, and the left in uh, North America had a bit of uh, difficulty with it. Uh, but again, it looks different when you're living in New York or you're living in Toronto from what it looks like when you're living there and you have no alternative country. There's, a, there, there, there's an Israeli song, Ein Eretz Acheret, which means there's no other country. That's the only country they have. And when you're under rocket attack by a group that wants to eliminate your country, it's pretty simple. So, the, you know, I was hearing from my leftist friends in Israel, this was a different conflict for them. Yeah. And I think the same thing happened to the political opposition in this country. I think they... Had, and that's why I think it smoked out... I mean, the, the people who were most vitriolic against Israel this time around, I don't want to say they were uh, Hamas supporters. I want to say they don't really believe in a two-state solution. I mean, the reason that they were so vitriolic is that when you scratch beneath them, a lot of them really don't believe in a two-state solution. They don't think the Jews are a nation. They don't think Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish nation. They, they They... talk about a one-state solution. They talk about Israel being an apartheid state. All these people, Zionist has now become a dirty word to say that you are a Zionist. All that Zionist means is that you think there should be a country called Israel. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't think there should be a country called Palestine. You can be a Zionist who believes in Palestine as well. But Zionist has become a dirty word. That's something that's changed over the last 10, 15 years. Well, let's go back beyond 15 years ago. Uh, let's, go, let's go back to 92, uh, when Mulroney made you uh, Canada's uh, ambassador to Israel, and, and in doing so broke an anti-Semitic kind of unspoken rule that no Jew could hold that post, because the suspicion was any Jew would essentially put their loyalties to Israel above uh, their loyalties to, to, to Canada. Do you feel any conflict now between your role as a Canadian citizen and, and, and who you are as a Jew and as a Zionist? I'm happy to be living in Canada. Yeah, me too. I had a choice. Uh, I could have. I could have gone to live in Israel. I could have stayed in Israel. I speak Hebrew fluently. I could have stayed there. I could have lived there. Certainly, was not my choice. It was not my choice when I was in my twenties, and my girlfriend decided to go to Israel, and I didn't. And it's not my choice today. So I had no. Difficulty. I, you know, I had some tough talks with uh, the Israeli government, uh, putting forward the Canadian position. Never had a problem. I think the opportunity I had was to understand that country and those two peoples, and to communicate that in a fashion to our foreign ministry and to the prime minister's office, etc. I think I had a tremendous advantage. Uh, I picked up Arabic. I had a tremendous advantage in being able to report. I knew everybody in the country. I could deal with everybody. I had regular meetings with the prime minister. I could go see uh, Arafat whenever I wanted to see Arafat. I think it was a tremendous opportunity to communicate. To me, it's inconceivable that you would go to a country and not know the language. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be reporting from that country, if you're going to be reporting diplomatically, you have a tremendous advantage to, to know the language. Norman, you already got the job. It's okay. <laughs> that, was what I said, that was what I said at my confirmation hearings when one of the members of parliament said, well, we see you know Hebrew and uh, you're the first ambassador. Will you make a commitment to learn Arabic? And I said, yes. <laughs> While I've got you here, I'm just curious about something else that came across when I was reading up on you. This one thing you said, uh, there's no way that any prime minister's office in Canadian history 
would have allowed the CBC to cover Parliament Hill the way they've covered the Mideast conflict. I wrote that, yeah. And you're saying that as somebody who's very familiar with how the Prime Minister's office works. And, and when I read that, I thought, uh, you know, the very idea that the Prime Minister's office would be able to allow or disallow the CBC to cover Parliament one way or the other uh, is shocking. You don't think there's pressure on the CBC from the Prime Minister's office? I'm sure there's constant pressure on the CBC from the Prime Minister's office. But what do you know that you can now tell me about what the Prime Minister can directly allow or disallow when it comes to CBC coverage? You, you must know about the uh, Terry Molesky affair, APEC. Yeah, when, when Chrétien uh, criticized Molesky's coverage uh, of APEC and then the CBC suspended him. No government likes the coverage it gets. Let's just start from that proposition. And that goes for Obama and it goes for every Canadian prime minister. People don't like to be criticized, okay? But there's a line where, you know, a prime minister's office that... Uh, that uh, feels that it's gone much too far will let it be known to the CBC, and the CBC will crack. And it cracked on Malevsky, on APEC. They benched him. They didn't support him. The CBC fundamentally is a bureaucracy, and a bureaucracy has survival instincts. I don't know, how, I don't know what the pressures have been, uh, in, you know, in this administration. Mulroney, uh, with Mulroney... It, we weren't putting all that much pressure on the CBC because most, in fact, there were times that he would ask me to call a journalist when I was chief of staff. I wouldn't even call. A lot of his thing was personal. A lot of it was his personal. I mean, one was kind of embarrassed to raise it with people that you, uh, that you considered to be, you know, you had respect for. He was thin-skinned. He was very thin-skinned. I mean, you know, Stanley Hart used to have this great routine where, you know, he'd be, he'd be the... Uh, Yes. Oh, hi, Prime Minister. The call that would come at 10 minute, 10.04, you know, after the first item on the national, Prime Minister calling about something. And that's what it was like, but mostly it was personal. So, but yeah, I think the, I think the most egregious case that I've seen is Terry Malewski, because not only uh, was it clear that the Prime Minister's office was on him, but it's clear that the CBC buckled, including Mansbridge. Huh. I didn't know that. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at jessebrown. You can support the show at patreon.com slash canadaland. And the show's website is canadalandshow.com, which you will want to keep a close eye on this week. I make this show with Christopher DeMello, and we will have another episode up for you on Monday. If you like this show, support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.